0: To it was like a three-year-long New Year's Eve party.
1: That's See, that's what I want to know a little bit, because it's, is it just as magical as I think it is, or as you read that it yes, is?
0: Yes, it was, as I far mean, as got, I'm concerned. Yeah. They asked people, did you know it was going to be what it turned out to be? And most people said no, and I would always say, yes, I know. And I knew you exactly... Knew Yeah, I knew. I mean,
1: you can look at these fucking pictures and you just, you can just see. Like, how could it not be just so bad to the bone and just like uh, amazing and exciting and looking at, you know, I'm just. This is just me being young and looking at these things and I right. see it's across the river him living and it's happened ten years earlier, but like this is this is beautiful looking to me.
0: Yeah, it people was people like
1: Wayne County or Jane County Jane and they, Wayne yeah, County, yeah. Johnny Thunders and all and all these people but together and all in the same thing just to make music, you Absolutely. know. Absolutely. And that seems, you know, pretty special.
0: Pretty impressive.
1: This is Sonically Speaking and I'm Justin Savage. On this show, we talk to people who have taken a different path in life and find out how they got there. On this episode, we fiddle with the rabbit ears of life. We're talking to guitarist Richard Lloyd, escaping from New York, falling into the Valley of Dolls and rocking and rolling.
0: I'm Richard Lloyd, and uh, I'm a guitarist and singer, and I was in a band called Television. Which was the uh, first band we talked uh, CBGBs into having uh, rock music, although they didn't want it, and they didn't want it for a long time. Uh, CBGB stands for Country, Bluegrass, and Blues, and Am Fug, other music for undernourished gourmandizers. So uh, we said we'd play a little rock, and he says I'm not having rock. We said. Uh, Well, what are you having? He says, country, bluegrass, and blues. Well, we play a little blues. We play a little country, a little rock, a little country, a little rock, a little rock, a little, you know. And he still said no. Our manager went to see him and said, I'm going to invite all alcoholics to your show, and your bar tab will be very good, so let my band play. And he he said— If my bar tab doesn't uh, exceed your best night, I will make the difference. That's how we got our first gig at CBGB's, which then, of course, became a big scene with uh, Talking Heads, Ramones, Blondie, uh, Dead Boys, uh, shirts, you name it. You know, a lot of bands came out of CBGB's that first uh, incubation period.
1: Let's let's hold on, because I want to get there.
0: I yeah, want we'll I
1: want to back up a little bit, man. I right, back up. Let's uh, start this uh, jungle. That was
0: my first band, and then but then who else have you played with since then? Uh, Matthew Sweet, I'm on nine of his records and did a couple tours with him. John Doe, I'm on his first. John Doe from X, I'm on his first record, Meet John Doe, and uh, some pretty funny stories to go along with that. And it was in my friend, a friend of mine, Jimmy Mastro, who was in my band uh, along with his drummer, uh, Vinny D'Annunzio. They were in my band when I did my first solo record, Alchemy, for Elektra. And then uh, many years later, I went with his band, which was called The Health and Happiness Show. And we did a number of tours of the States and like that. But, you know... I played around the world.
1: And Rocket from the...
0: Rocket from the Tombs, of course. Right, yeah. Yeah, with Cheetah and David Thomas. Cheetah Chrome, David Thomas. That was a hoot.
1: We'll get there, too. So that's pretty much... And you do, and you solo, and you do and your own business, records.
0: right? I've got about nine, eight, nine solo records out. All right. Not out very far, but they're out.
1: They're somewhere. So where are you from? Where did you? Where did this begin? Where did you hatch from? Where did you come from?
0: I hatched in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, but moved to New York when I was six, and I lived there ever since till I moved to Chattanooga. Did you have any any memories of Pittsburgh at all, or anything? Oh, sure, because I used to go back during the summer to visit my grandparents, who lived there, and I remember it. Homestead was uh, at the upper echelon of the. Of the poor, you know, not uh, up not lower middle class, upper lower class, and who raised you? My grandparents, yeah, basically, till I was six or six or seven, then my mom uh, took me back, as it were,
1: and your father was not in the picture.
0: My father left when I was like, my parents broke up when I was three months old, so. I saw him once or twice after that, and he joined the Navy, and that was the last I ever saw of him.
1: Were your uh, grandparents sound like they were good people taking care of
0: you? Oh, my grandparents were great people, absolutely. My grandfather uh, looked just like Ralph Cramden in The Honeymooners. I mean, really looked like him. And he was the water meter reader in Homestead, Pennsylvania. So he wore a uniform uh, like a bus driver's. And he really, really did look like uh, Ralph Cramden from The Honeymooners.
1: Were they into music at all?
0: Oh, no. There was a little baby toy piano that was actually in tune, and I used to play that um, till nobody could teach me anything. And I ended up uh, playing it with my fists and smashed the whole thing you know out of frustration cuz i could make two notes sound good together but three sometimes good sometimes not i didn't know how to play chords and nobody i asked my mother you know can you teach me to play piano she was like oh i don't know how to play piano richard and i asked can you get me lessons and she said oh we can't afford uh, piano lessons so i'm sorry so that was that with the piano
1: so you moved to New York. What part of New York did you move to? And what, uh, if you don't mind me asking, what can you give me a, a time My frame, s- y- what years we in?
0: No, I don't, I don't believe in years. You don't believe in years? No, I don't believe in years. I mean, I just don't, that's... The 60s, and the early 60s, maybe, or something? This would be the late 50s. Okay. 59, 50s, 50, 59, 60. Okay, that works. We lived in uh, Columbus Circle... For a while, and then we moved to Greenwich Village, which is basically where I grew up. That's a pretty cool place to grow up. It was a very cool place to grow up. And what did your mom do? Uh, She was a an actress. uh, Didn't get too much work. Uh, She was in a soap opera for a while, playing a nun. Nice. Like on Sunday morning, Sunday mornings. And my father, my stepfather, that is. He was a film editor, still is. He used to do uh, TV, com- you know, edited TV commercials like uh, Nestle and uh, Gillette, uh, Shaving Cream, and, and L-E-S-T-S, Nestle's make the very best chocolate. There you are, instant chocolatey quick. Step
1: aside that. Hmm? Oh, quick, get Nestle's quick. It makes milk taste like a million.
0: On
1: the atom, the fight's over. Really, who won? No. And ESD, LAS, makes the very best
0: chocolate. Stuff like that. He Is, used to watch TV just to see the commercials. He'd be like, "Oh, I did that one. Oh, I did that one." You know?
1: Were they cool? Were they nice people? Oh, they
0: were very cool. Yeah.
1: That sounds pretty artsy, like I, a very uh, it different. Kind of,
0: Broke me because I wanted to stay with my grandparents, but when my mother said, "Do you want to come live with me?" I said, "Well, you're my mother, so of course." But that was uh, a turning point in my mental health, which went down <laughs> considerably.
1: Were you hurt that you you made the choice and you had a bail yeah, a situation I mean, no, that you were happy with?
0: At that, you know, when you're five and six years old, you shouldn't make have to make choices like that. So it was like. You know, an adult choice. They should have made it for me, and that would have been that. But uh, putting it in my hands was, you know, disruptive to my uh, my natural childish growth, childlike growth. So I was upset, let's say, depressed. At six? Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is why I couldn't figure out why adults took poisons.
1: You mean like booze and stuff booze, like that? Booze,
0: you know, in the cartoons, they, they always have the skull and crossbones on liquor bottles, and then you'd get the cartoon character who was drunk, but no harm would ever come to them. You know, they were always they they were always somehow safe, you know, no matter how goofy they got. And uh but I couldn't figure it out because The adults drank and they smoked cigarettes and they hacked and coughed and got in arguments when they drank. And I thought, i got to get to the bottom of this. Why are adults doing that? So I stole a cigarette when I was 9 and I broke into the liquor cabinet when I was 10. And I was taking my grandmother's uh, diet pills back then because she wasn't taking them. And I said, well, why aren't you taking these? She says... Oh, I don't like, they make me feel jittery. But I was reading James Bond when I was 10 and 11, you know, and James Bond used amphetamines, so I got into those. And from then, you know, it went on and on. I uh, I remember when I was 14 and I was um, had to make a decision whether I was going to smoke pot and to, if whether I was going to take illegal substances... Or not?
1: This is and, you're asking yourself this question. I'm
0: asking myself, and I said to myself, you know, ninety nine hundred ninety nine out of a thousand people who start this end up destroying themselves. Are you going to go that route? And uh, then I asked myself, and I said, and are you the one in a thousand who's going to be able to survive? And my answer came back, no, not necessarily. And then my question was, well, sometimes in that destructive process, art is thrown out by a centripetal force, centrifugal, centrifugal force, while the the drugs take you down centripetally. And uh, then I asked myself, are you, even though there are all these inherent dangers, uh, are you going to do it anyway? And the answer came back, yes. It was one way to become an adventurer. You know, I couldn't climb Mount Everest. I haven't I haven't climbed Mount Everest, and I haven't gone to the moon, but I've been in uh, state mental institutions, and I've taken more drugs than, you know, uh, I don't do that anymore, I'm retired. You ought to retire after a while. You know, the drugs can show you something, but uh, then you ought to be able to return to that place, you know. Well, sometimes
1: that ain't easy. That takes a little work.
0: <laughs> well, it takes work. But that was always—I never took uh, alt mind-altering substances just for the sheer pleasure of it. it. Was always a some kind of a spiritual search.
1: Well, by reading your uh, memoirs, definitely uh, lots of uh, uh, questing. It seems like going on. Or you're—you're you're definitely.
0: A questioner,
1: yeah, which is great. Oh, I mean, yeah. life should be like that, anyways, which is great because if uh, you're just right. blank, then you're missing out on a whole bunch because it's all there for the taking, man. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm with you there. So, okay, so you're growing up in Greenwich Village and now you're getting politely stoned, right? I guess, yeah, we I can got go to that age now yeah? pretty soon. Uh, but that's got to be great, and everything was there. I mean, Greenwich Village in that time has oh, got to be great.
0: I didn't leave Manhattan for years and years. You didn't have to because every anything in the world, you could get it in, in New York City.
1: Sounds, are you hearing sounds at this point? Like, are you, are, are you hearing bands? Sure, are you seeing- well,
0: I was listening to the AM radio, which was, you know, the hits of the day, WMCA and w, uh, ABC And with, you know, Cousin Brucey and all these other famous... DJs of the time and nothing. And I was waiting for, like, intelligent life, you know, good music. And there, especially in 61, 62, there was nothing but schmaltz, you know, like uh, Dion and uh, all these doo cats. And the first intelligent thing I heard was, like, Motown or girl groups, you know, the Phil Spector. Groups And that was kind of almost okay. And then the Beatles came and everything became okay. Ladies and
1: gentlemen.
0: That was a very powerful... uh,
1: Did you see them on Ed Sullivan or you just heard uh,
0: it? No, I saw... a, A friend of my parents came to visit us a couple of months before and said, oh, there's this new thing coming out of England, it's going to be huge. Have you heard of the Beatles? And I hadn't. But, you know, my knee-jerk reaction was to say yes. And then they were coming up on TV, and uh, so we all sat down to watch it. And it was quite incredible.
1: So you were in, I guess, at that point.
0: I was in at that point, absolutely. Did you want a guitar? I always wanted a guitar. But uh, I played drums. It was easier to get a drum and hit things, you know, at that time. So I pl- I studied drums for three and a half years with a drum teacher who was out of the big band era.
1: What was their name?
0: Uh William Kessler.
1: And who did you play with just all kinds of people or?
0: Oh, he was a ghostwriter for various people like Cozy Cole and Gene Krupa. Well, they would play their thing and he would write it out. Nice. You know, transcribe it.
1: And so then when do he you make was it? a
0: ghostwriter for a lot of these big band jazz guy drummers
1: and, when, and how old are you here?
0: Oh I must have been 12, 13, 14, 15 in that era of my life <laughs> So of its life
1: of its life so when does it start to at least uh, and you're in school, I take it, and you caring more about oh, yeah, the t- I'm are you caring school. more about the tunes at this point uh, internally. What's that? Are you carrying more, uh, not so much the books, but. Uh,
0: the no, music? I loved studying yeah. and I loved school and I loved everything about it except homework. Um, to me, homework was a way to tell you to go teach yourself. And then uh, you got tests that only propped up the teacher, basically. Because if the teacher got uh, a lot of kids passing, you know, obviously he was a good teacher, but that's not always the case the most interesting teachers were the ones that could hold your interest for 45 minutes on a subject and really hold your interest because they were as excited about their subject you know as anybody else and that was a good thing um and i went to an all boys all science high school which you had to take a test to get into and uh like 20,000 kids would take the test for 240 slots. So I was very lucky to get in because if I hadn't the neighborhood school was all knife fights and gangs and heroin and all this other hard drug crap. So I'm I'm uh was very lucky to have avoided that.
1: When do you start wanting to play guitar? I mean, even though you say you, you, you always wanted yeah, to. Yeah, I wanted
0: to play guitar, but I didn't have one, and uh, it's hard to play guitar when you don't have one. My father, uh, no, my, whenever I say my father, I mean my stepfather now. My stepfather had a ukulele he had gotten in Hawaii in the Air Force, and he didn't want me playing it because I played it with a quarter as a pick, a coin as a pick. Because those giant felt picks they use was just like no go for me. So I played the ukulele for as much as I could, uh, you know, steal it from its hiding place. And uh, because my father hid it, you know, from me.
1: But he knew you were taking it and playing.
0: Well, apparently, yeah, he (laughs) figured it out. And so he hid it even further, but I found it. And, uh, yeah, I played that. And I had two cousins in Pittsburgh, and when I went back one summer, they were going to form a rockabilly band and do Elvis stuff and Everly Brothers stuff, these two cousins. And they had a guitar, and uh, I was over for a sleepover one, one day, one night, and uh, we were passing the guitar around. I couldn't play it. I used to have to move my left-hand fingers with my right hand to form a chord, you know, yeah, put, put my fingers down the right places and then strum it and move my fingers. to. They taught me um, C, D, and uh, E, I think, and uh, C, G, D, and E, or C, G, and D. Uh, for the musicians in the in the audience, uh, you'll know those numb those those letters, their chords. so uh it came time to go to sleep, and I had the guitar, and they were like, "Stop that nonsense, it's time to sleep. So I went in the bathroom and I played the guitar uh, with those three chords till dawn. And the next thing I knew, they were knocking on the door. You know, I got to get in there. What the hell are you doing in there? You still playing that guitar? I said, why? What time is it? They said, it's in the morning. It's light outside. And I had played all night. So I guess I had some desperation to to actually play the guitar.
1: You were hooked, it sounds like.
0: I was hooked. When? And, And, you know, I had realized... I wondered why the Beatles were able to command such an influence on young people, old people too, but why they were able to be so mesmerizing. And a couple of years later, uh, I realized the guitar was like their magic wand. And uh, so I wanted to play guitar based on that. Because
1: you like that... uh hypnotizing appeal that it
0: had I've always been into hypnosis I've studied hypnosis I had a hypnosis study group in uh, junior high school as well as a slang invention group and we used to sit around and uh, hypnotize each other except most of the people in the group wanted to be hypnotized (laughs) but nobody wanted to hypnotize me so I got the short end of the stick I've always been that way
1: getting the short end of the stick?
0: No, Uh, leading things and finding, you know, that people aren't, uh, they don't get it. They don't Uh, get it a lot of times. Some people are like that, you know. Some people are leaders and some people
1: are, you know, followers.
0: Yeah, most people are followers. It just is that way. Now just sit back and listen to the music as you concentrate and relax. Those flickering lights have a soothing effect. And as you watch them, you begin to feel every muscle of your body settling back in comfort and rest. When,
1: uh, when do you meet... I don't know if I'm jumping around age-wise, but I'm yeah. only going just on because we're at the guitar. When, when do you meet uh, Velvet? And, w- uh, and when does that come into play? Or, and you can take me
0: to we there. We were at a friend's house waiting for some hashish we had all pooled our money for.
1: Now, I don't mean to interrupt, but are, are you at this point, are you are you playing guitar a little bit on, on your own, and are you taking any lessons or anything, or, uh, or what's the deal guitar-wise? Here? I
0: had gotten a guitar, and I really couldn't play it, but i gotten a Stratocaster from the older brother of one of my best friends, Danny uh, Birch, and his brother Matt. Came in one day and he says, "Oh, um, this guitar won't stay in tune. It's driving me crazy. I would sell it cheap." And I was just like, "How cheap?" And he said, "Like two hundred dollars." And I so I asked my parents and they said, "Oh no, you're a good drummer. We're not, we're not buying you a guitar." So I had to get the money myself, which I did, and then I bought that guitar from him. So I had, I had a guitar, and you know I was struggling with it, but. Yeah, yeah. No no lessons or anything, though. No what?
1: No, no lessons. No, nothing like that. No lessons. No. No Mel Bay guitar book or anything.
0: No, no. (laughs) I never studied from books or, you know, I just studied from watching. I was growing up in Greenwich Village, I and going to the Fillmore East an awful lot. I got to be in front of all the great guitarists. And I would watch their hands. To, you know, I'm good that way. If I see you play something, I can replicate it.
1: And ear as well?
0: No. No no I'm ear? Terrible. I'm terrible at that. I can't, uh, like, uh, people would come to school, my guitar-playing friends, and they go, oh, I learned this off the record, you know, and let me show it to you. And I was like, no, don't show it to me because then I'll, uh, if it's good, I'll end up unconsciously plagiarizing it. (laughs) I didn't want that. Gotcha. Wanted my own style, whatever that might turn out to be.
1: So you, uh, so now we can get to, uh, I just wanted to see where we were guitar-wise before I get to Velvet.
0: We were waiting for some stuff at a friend's house after school, and the phone rang, and we, we thought it was the dealer, but it um Our friend's face fell, and he went, oh, no, it's this guy, Velvet, this scrawny black kid from Brooklyn, and he claims to know Jimi Hendrix. And that's ridiculous. He's out of his mind. And let's all laugh when he gets here, you know, laugh at him. So uh, everybody was all having a giggle about that. And about 10 minutes later, he came over, and when they opened the door and I saw him, I said to myself, or it said itself to me, "Yes, he knows Jimi Hendrix, no doubt." It about internally, it. you, you knew yeah, that. Yeah, I, I, gotcha. I knew he lo- I knew he he knew Jimi Hendrix. It was just uh, that kind of intuition and just the impression that he gave off to me was that he was factual. That he and I thought to myself, "Well, Jimmy doesn't live on Mars." He's got to know some human beings, and why not this kid? I found out later he had seen Jimmy on TV and started, his mother told me, he was jumping up and down, uh, saying, oh, I I know that guy. I got to meet that guy, you know, speaking of Hendrix. So I believed him, and nobody else believed him, and they said, prove it, and he called up the hotel Jimmy was staying at And there was no answer. So uh, he passed the phone around in tears saying, I tried my best, I tried my best. When it got to me on the second ring, Jimmy picked up. And uh, apparently he'd been taking a nap. And he said, uh, I remember he he went like, hey, man, (laughs) who is this? What's happening, man? Who is this? And I said, "Well, it's Velvet." Like I was his secretary, and I handed. <laughs> the, well, what was I going to say? It's Richard Lloyd, man. You know, he'd be like, "Who? <laughs> you woke me up for that?" Anyway, Velvet, and he talked for a while, and he came back and said, "Jimmy's playing tonight," and he can and invited me plus one, and I'm going to take. And he spun around a couple of times. And then he pointed his finger to me. I was the only person without my hand up, like, oh, take me, take me. These are all the kids that had been laughing at him. So he took me, and we became very best friends when I was a, a middle teenager. This must have been when I was 15, 14, 15.
1: And he, and he played, right?
0: Silver. Well, Jimmy was teaching him. He was the only the only verified guitar student of Hendrix.
1: And why did he take him under his wing like that? Why why was he teaching I him? I
0: don't know why. He called him his little brother and he treated him, you know, like he was a best friend. And Jimmy could do that, you know? He he was a very friendly and very shy person on his own. He wasn't anything like he was on, on stage with all the... Uh, Tricks he pulled, you know, playing the guitar between his legs and with his teeth and behind his back and over his neck. So, but on his own, he was a tremendously shy person.
1: Did he show you some stuff?
0: Jimmy didn't. Velvet did.
1: So you got, like, secondhand.
0: I got secondhand lessons, yeah.
1: You can't beat that, though.
0: Mm Mm-mm. No way. That was a tremendous... uh, experience.
1: Sounds like it.
0: Yeah. And we went to see him a lot or followed him around.
1: Jimmy, that is. Jimmy. Yeah. Did he start to recognize you?
0: Yeah, he knew I was Velver's friend. Yeah? Yeah. I don't know if he knew my name.
1: Well, that's got to be quite a scene for a kid to be around.
0: Yeah, I kept my mouth shut. That's smart. (laughs) It keeps me around longer.
1: (laughs) I know how that goes, man. You know? I'm still learning how to do that sometimes.
0: Yeah, if you open your mouth you were tended to be shown the door. You know, if you were like not in the inner friend circle. I mean, I wasn't his, I wasn't Jimmy's friend. I was just a friend of Velver's who's happened to be hanging around.
1: And you guys are going to shows, not just Jimmy Hendrix. You, are you and Velvet going oh, yeah, to shows? A so lot now, of shows. I mean, I, I'm only saying because you're saying Jimmy Hendrix, so we're in the late 60s at this point now. No,
0: right? I saw Jeff Beck Group, Allman Brothers, Grateful Dead. And you uh, the Fillmore East? At the Fillmore East, or the Fillmore of, yeah? East mostly. These, or Steve Paul scene, Buddy Guy. You know Steve Paul's scene? No, I don't think so. There's no. a tiny little club where all the English rock musicians would go hang, And uh, it was on 46th Street and 8th Avenue in a basement. And uh, we would go, and uh, the doorman, Teddy, who later on became the tour manager for Johnny Winter, uh, he wouldn't let us in because, I mean, we were 14, 15, you know, and we were drinking. So he he wanted our ID. And uh, so what we did was we would wait out front, until some rock act was coming by and asked them to take us in with them, like the Chambers brothers or or uh, Traffic or, you know, whomever was in town at that time. And that's how we would get in.
1: And you're just soaking all this up, though.
0: And I'm soaking it all up, yeah, like a sponge.
1: Lucky you. So do well, you... I don't believe in luck. Well,
0: uh... It's hard to find another word.
1: I don't know. To, I don't know another way. But you were, I guess, in the right place. It, at you were in the right place at the right time. Maybe let's yeah. say that does that work better. So uh, you eventually do you go to California soon after this, or am I? Uh,
0: I went to Boston for a while and lived there for a year and a half. And are you done with school at this point? Are you still? No, no, I'm done with school. After the, uh, I went to three days of college. And that was it. And that was it. I decided it was like a meat market kind of, uh, you know, extension of high school. And I didn't want to have anything to do with it.
1: But did you want to play? Like you wanted to to play? Like you knew this is what you you wanted to do? At that
0: point, I knew what I wanted to do was to become a guitarist and have an, an impact on the history of rock and roll in some way, shape, or form. That's good. So yeah, that's go- a good goal. Yeah, that is a great goal. Yeah. It's a
1: fantastic goal. Huh?
0: I mean, I didn't want to become I wanted to become one of the best guitarists on the planet, but I not the best and I wasn't in a competition with anybody. There's room at the top if you're talented.
1: So from Boston, do you go to California then?
0: Boston, I came back to New York. And there was nothing going on in New York at this time. Musically, you mean? Musically. This was like 69, 70. So I went to California for like two and a half years.
1: And what was the appeal for California music?
0: Well, it was, I had a choice. New York wasn't happening. And if you think about the cultural centers in rock music, they were New York, London, and Los Angeles. I didn't want to cross the big water. You know, and get stranded in England. So I decided to go to L.A. and that was down Route 66, which I ended up not going down. But I—I I, uh, that was the idea.
1: What's to go on Route 66?
0: To go to the end of Route 66, gotcha. which is L.A. Basically, L.A., Pasadena and L.A. So I went to L.A.
1: And how long? What was, were you doing there?
0: Uh, going to record company parties and uh, doing the same thing I was had been doing in New York, sh- wood shedding on guitar and with my electric guitar, but uh, without a, an amplifier. The first guitar I had got stolen from me. The Strat? At Knife Point, yeah, at Knife Point in uh, in a park in New York. And I didn't have a guitar, and I went there and... So I sold off my drum kit, got the money to buy a guitar.
1: What kind of guitar did you get?
0: I got a Telecaster because I couldn't afford a Stratocaster. This was at the very first guitar center when there was only one of them. It was on Sunset Boulevard. So I bought a, a Telecaster, and I was playing it, but I had no amp. I didn't want an amp. I didn't want anybody to actually hear me play. Cause I wasn't that good.
1: Have, but have you plugged in before?
0: Uh, when I'd you had pl- the stri- yeah, yeah, I'd plugged in before, absolutely. But uh, and the first time I borrowed, somebody loaned me a bass amp, and I turned it on ten, and I couldn't play. So all I did was make feedback, you know, for hours and knock the dishes off out of the cabinets in the in the kitchen my mother came up and said, uh, come look in the kitchen. I said, what for? She says, just come and look. And I went down, and the uh, dishes were smashed on the floor, and the vibrations had, you know, danced them out of the cabinets. And, but that didn't stop me. And my, my mother used to take her a lawn chair and go out and sit on the lawn when I was playing with her mother, who was staying with us, because uh, you know they couldn't take it in the house.
1: <laughs> so how long? When you say you were going to record company parties, industry part, did you have an inn? With some, I mean, did you have somebody? Well, I
0: ended up I ended up rooming with uh, the uh, music critic for the Los Angeles Times, Richard Cromelin. I think that's still his job, uh, music critic for the L.A. Times. But he was that a so, Record companies would send us invitations to parties and uh, send us records, which we would then sell to eat, stuff like that.
1: How long did this last for you? In uh, two years. Like two years. Until I you- heard
0: something was going on in New York. Right. And that was like my cue to come back. I heard about the dolls.
1: But how did you, we're just, now it's not, it's a whole different time frame. So, and that's not this day and age. So how are you hearing about this? Is it magazines? Is it just word on the street? Word
0: Word of mouth.
1: They
0: were in New York. Playing at a place called the Mercer Arts Center, right? which was the beginning of a, uh, a scene. So I actually looked for and got a ride back to New York.
1: Specifically for that?
0: Specifically to join this scene, whatever it was, you know, because there was something happening in New York, my hometown. Um, but on the way there, we, we drove, on the way there, the Mercer Arts Center fell down. It literally collapsed on itself. And so that was the end of the scene. So when I got back to New York, there was really very little going on. There was a couple of places people could play, and I went and saw bands at these places. But uh, there was no centralized place for a scene to build up.
1: What was the hotel? Was that something else? The uh, The
0: Diplomat Hotel, yeah, Yeah, I used to go there a lot.
1: And did they have a residency there, or they just uh, the I mean, dolls they just played sh- there? I don't know yeah. if they had a residency, but they there. played a lot. There. They yeah. played
0: a lot there, yeah. And other bands, I can't remember the names of the bands, but bands that didn't eventually make it. But uh, yeah, there were a lot of bands playing at Hotel Diplomat.
1: But so, are you meeting people um, well, at this I, point because of that? I because found of that, out scene? that
0: the action was in. Uh, in the back room of a place called Maxis, Kansas City.
1: So for anybody who doesn't know what that is, can you describe uh, what that is?
0: Well, it was a watering hole bar and restaurant where all of the uh, Andy Warhol factory people would go after hours and, uh, or, you know, at night and hang out. Plus they put out uh, free uh, uh, hors d'oeuvres during happy hours, so we would go there and eat, mostly. You know, you buy one drink and, and that was it. Or if, or just go and eat and drink water, you know. Very impoverished.
1: When do you, is it around this time that you meet Terry York?
0: I met him back in the back room of Max's Kansas City.
1: Which is where the action, w- and, I mean, that was w- the real that spot. That was though. where
0: the action was, yeah, in New York at the time. And uh, I had no place to stay, and I, was stay- I stayed at Danny Field's house for, for uh, two weeks. I stayed at this girl's house for a week. I stayed at this other girl's house for two weeks, you know, but I had no place of my own. And Terry said, you know, I have a roommate. He just moved out. Do you want to take over that? He uh, had a loft, and it had a separate front room. I said absolutely. You know, so I so I moved in with Terry.
1: And, and can you uh, say who t- Terry? I mean I know him just from reading but for someone who's listening who's got no clue what well, we're talking Well, Terry
0: York worked for Andy making silk screens and like most of the people he made extra silk screens that he would sell on the black market. He eventually went to jail over it, over taxes over that but long after uh, I would separated and television that separated from him. But that gave him a sort of income. He also worked at a place called Cinemabilia, which sold movie posters and, you know, signed stills and autographs and, you know, stuff of movie stars and crap like that, movies, Cinemabilia. And uh, another guy worked there, Richard Myers, who became Richard Hell, One day I, uh, Terry said, there's this guy who does what you do. And I said, how dare you? What do you mean? What do I do? You don't know what I do. What do I do? He says, well, you play guitar by yourself all alone. And that's what this guy's doing. He doesn't have a band. He's playing at a place called Reno Sweeney's during audition night, doing like 10 minutes. So, uh. I didn't want to go. I said, why should I go see somebody who's doing what I already am doing? I'd be better off practicing than seeing somebody else, you know?
1: And you haven't had a ba- and you, you haven't no, had, I had I didn't a band. Have yet. A band right?
0: I, I was Terry was gonna put together a band around me and we actually did I did put a band together. I called it I think Crossfire and we played one gig and that was at a policeman's benevolent association block party, and which was pretty riotous because there were as many gangsters there as uh, as cops and you could smell gunpowder, you know, in the street anyway uh, and they hired us. so but that was the only gig crossfire ever did. And then uh, Terry said, "Do you want to go see this guy?" And I said, I don't know, you know. Then the day came where he was going to play, and Terry said, you sure you don't want to go? And I had just broken a string on my guitar, and I didn't have another one, so I said, well, all right. And that was uh, Tom Miller, who became Tom Verlaine, after Miller wasn't such a cool name, I guess, and Myers became hell. And uh, anyway, I saw him play, and I thought to myself, yeah, he's got it. You know, the the undefinable it star quality, whatever you want to call it. And I knew I had it, but I his it was missing something. And my it was missing something, and I saw how the two could fit together like a jigsaw puzzle. And I could augment what he was doing and I he could help me with what I wanted to do, which was to achieve which was to make an impact on rock and roll. And so uh, he came down to see me, and we passed my guitar back and forth and played a bunch. And then uh, he came
1: down to, to the loft?
0: He came down to the loft one day with Richard Hell, who was his best friend. And uh, they listened to me play, and he played, and I played, and he played. We passed the guitar. And then Richard Hell. And Tom went off in a corner and whispered to each other and came back and said, okay, we'll try it.
1: I don't need no justification. <laughs> What's this hotness? nippy
0: and uh, at that time richard hell was not going to play in the band
1: was he going to sing or something or what? no he
0: wasn't going to do anything he was the sort of the best friend of Tom, and he tore the T-shirts, you know, on us. And he came up with the kind Please. of fashion that I now call the glamour of poverty. <laughs> and take a T-shirt, and uh, old ratty T-shirt, and rip the shoulder of it so you saw a nipple or some, you know, crazy stuff like that. Ragtag, you know, hobos from outer space, tramps on the run.
1: Tramps on the run. Yeah. So what happens that makes him want to play, or when does it sounds like it's the, the pot is starting to brew? Maybe a little bit here, but well, something knew, is happening.
0: We knew Tom and I were going to put together something, and then and uh, Richard Hill had played bass with Tom before, and so we we eventually talked him into playing bass. But he didn't rehearse. He didn't practice. So we had to rehearse like every day to try to get him. And uh, then uh, Tom said, oh, I know a great drummer. He's in Boston, Billy Ficka, and he'll come down. Uh, You know, I know he'll abandon whatever he's doing. As a matter of fact, he, he wasn't in a band at that exact moment. So he came down to New York, and we started rehearsing. In earnest, And about three days later, Tom said, can I talk to you for a minute? I said, sure. And we went off in a, another part of the loft, and he said, oh, man, I'm so sorry I brought this drummer down. He used to be a great rock drummer. Now he's all jazzed out and everything. And I think we should get somebody else. And I was like, no, no, no. All the great guitarists have had crazy drummers, you know, whacked-out drummers. If you think about it, it's true. And long guitar solos don't work with, like, drum machine-type drummers. You know, it just gets boring. To have a drummer that's uh, all over the place is exciting, like Keith Moon for The Who or Mitch Mitchell for the Jimi Hendrix Experience or John Bonham for Led Zeppelin. You know, these are very... Or Mickey Waller with the original Jeff Beck group. These are all uh, amazing drummers with, you know, uh, incredible style of their own. And so, anyway, I stood up for Billy for the next thirty-five years, <laughs> and Billy went down to visit his father. I didn't have anything to do with it because I didn't want, I didn't want to find somebody else. But Tom went ahead and auditioned drummers, and but couldn't find anybody the fit, so Billy got kept the job.
1: Nice. Yeah. he has got that good jazz that that left, right? Oh, that it, yeah. 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 Uh, so
0: played cross stick like me. That's how you played too. No, oh, I was taught cross stick instead of matched grip.
1: Yeah, nice. I you know what
0: I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah, I mean all that's the way most jazz players played.
1: So. You are re- are you rehearsing at the loft? Is that we're
0: rehearsing at the loft and Terry York became our manager.
1: I mean, he saw what was happening. And he, I mean,
0: well, he wanted a band like Andy Warhol had, Velvet Underground. Right. He wanted to sponsor a band and he wanted to make a scene. And he was really, uh, you know, really a strong part of why that whole CBGB's thing happened because he did most of the booking along with Hilly, but Hilly didn't have a clue, you know, and the kids came in and really sort of ran him down. And his wife, uh, Karen Crystal, used to pull the plug on the groups on because groups they were too loud in her estimation. She never pulled the plug on television. She pulled the plug on the Ramones. She pulled the plug on Dead Boys. She pulled the plug on Talking Heads. Pulled the plug on everybody.
1: You got a pass? Yeah. So when... Very
0: annoying. until Hilly sat down with her and said, look, let's have an experiment. One week I'll book four nights and you book three, and the next week you'll book four and I'll book three, back and forth, and after a month we'll look at the bar receipts. And after the month was over... He showed her the bar receipts, and the nights where bands, the rock bands were playing, he did much better, and that shut her mouth.
1: So you are at, I mean, are we at CBGB's now? Or are you, I mean are yeah, at CBGB's I mean, is, is, it the band, is the band where you want it to be, and you guys have an understanding of what's going on, and you're starting to gel, and you yeah, feel like... Yeah, we
0: needed a place to play where we could be the house band. And uh, CBGB's was literally on Skid Row, the Bowery, underneath a literal flop house where bums would buy a bunk for like $1.65, I think, at the time. And so, uh, you know, there'd be wine and piss dripping down from the ceiling. And it was a very long bar. And we told Hilly was going to, the owner, Hilly, was going to put the stage in the front, so he he got that idea from the drive-in movie, where you the the band would face the back and you'd come in and turn around to watch the band. And I said that won't work; you'll get noise complaints. And he says, "I'm not having loud music." <laughs> uh-huh. What did he know? And he said, and th- "Finally, the what I said." well, what about the person taking money at the door to pay the bands? They won't be able to hear. And he goes, oh, yeah, they will. And I said, but then what happens when somebody wants to leave the club? they got to walk right in front of the band. It's going to be demoralizing. He said, well, where do you think we should put the stage? So we said, in the middle. And then you could have dressing rooms behind and the bar in the front and, you know, so he said, well, okay, you know, so everybody helped build the stage on that side of the the room that became the famous, the famous CBGBs. One time uh, some French people arrived from the airport. They came to CBGBs instead of their hotel first, you know, to see the famous CBGBs, and they walked in and were looking around. I, I remember them saying... This this is the famous CBGBs. <laughs> this is a this is shithole. <laughs> nice. Can I say that on the air?
1: This yeah, you can say whatever the fuck you want, man. All right. Yeah, we're, we got no rules here, man. No we're, rules. Yeah, we're good. This is uh this is going out in space, man. All right. Uh, so you guys are pretty much the fir- you are the first band. I guess. Well, there
0: were other bands that played there. Weird. Weird things. But
1: but not as far as when we're, when we, we're going to start to get to at least the that The bands scene. that are
0: known now.
1: Right, like that first wave, I guess, of punk, the even first though it's not wave, so much That's punk, right. Like, we were the right. first
0: of the first wave. And I think then Talking Heads showed up pretty soon after that. The Ramones didn't show up for about five, six months. And then Patti Smith didn't show up for about a year into that. But there were a lot of other bands, you are know. Are you
1: in 74 or what year? What year? This is
0: 74, 75, okay. 76.
1: And you guys have a set. I mean, you guys have a set of songs that you guys, each when you're playing. It keeps
0: changing, our set. We kept writing songs. Gotcha. And uh, we'd throw them out, you know.
1: And is uh, Hell still in the band at this point? Yeah, he's
0: still in the band okay. at this point. And we start trying to make demos, but with... Uh, You know, the rhythm section's all messed up because Billy isn't keeping strict time, and and Richard Hell couldn't keep strict time. So, you know, it's really a mess on the bottom. Yeah. And uh, when you first... There's nothing to uh, demoralize a band than to record it the first time (laughs) because everybody's (laughs) paying attention to their own parts. They're not really hearing... You know, in a scientific way, they're not analyzing the other people in the band. And suddenly you record it, and you see how utterly crappy the so the keyboard player is, or how bad the drummer is. You know, which is why a lot of those guys get replaced in recording, like the Birds, hardly ever, except for Roger McGuinn, who was a had been a session man. They weren't allowed to play. It was the wrecking crew. You know. And so, uh, but with the Beatles, everybody played their own instruments and wrote their own songs. And, uh, you know, that became sort of the standard then.
1: To make I mean, you tell me what well, happens to, make, the, to him for, for him to exit
0: yeah well he started when we first started we would do a 10 song set and uh, Tom would sing four Richard would sing four and I sang two of the songs and by and by and by my songs went out the way of the way of the wind and then
1: did that piss you off
0: not particularly. At the time, I didn't really want to sing, and uh, I wanted to sing. If I was going to sing, I'd want to sing on an equal basis. So it didn't bother me too much. And then he slowly started putting more of his own songs, Tom, and less of Richard's in the set, and that miffed Richard pretty good. But the, I think the uh, straw that broke Richard's... Uh, band, you know, his band membership was uh, we played a dual headlining set of like three nights with the Dolls, and Malcolm McLaren of Sex Pistols fame was managing the Dolls at the time, and he wanted very badly to manage television, and he thought Richard was like the star you know, because Richard jumped around on stage and had the, he had the look, as it were, and uh, Tom didn't like that very much. And we said no to Malcolm, he was a shyster anyway. Um, and uh, then we recorded a demo for Island, and Richard was on that, and that was, and there was like only one of his songs, out of the six, and uh, that was the end for him. He quit. Thereafter, he basically got pushed out by Tom, you know, and I was ready to quit too, at the time.
1: Because, well,
0: to me, the the in, the band was integral, integral, you know, and everybody in it was part of the band, so I didn't like to see that
1: uh, one person dominating the yeah, whole scenario. Yeah, one person
0: dominating the whole thing, and uh, but Tom convinced me to give Fred Smith a try. And within 10 minutes, I knew the music was better.
1: And he was playing with a... Uh,
0: he had been playing with Blondie right. at the time. So he left Blondie to play with television, you know, which uh, I don't know if if that's regrettable or not. Blondie went on, of course, to become, you know, super rich and super famous, but kind of a disco, you know, when they, when they discovered disco. Mike Chapman. And Mike Chapman turned them into uh, hip makers. Right. But, uh, no, Fred was with us for a long, long time. Terrific, terrific guy, great player. And all of a sudden, he was like the John Entwistle of The Who. He kept the beat in a way where the drummer didn't have to. You know, I mean, it wasn't like Billy was playing freestyle all the time. He still could play. And he's a great drummer. And he can play a beat, but he chooses to play all sorts of wacky stuff.
1: But they were, t- they were t- together. They were sort of locked in in their, in yeah, their own they way. Yeah, they could lock,
0: because yeah. Fred could do that, you know, and Fred actually could play the bass, whereas Richard, it was like just a, a toy to, for him to act out with.
1: And are you feeling confident about your playing and what's going oh, on? I'm
0: feeling pretty confident at that time, sure.
1: And you're feeling good about the band at this point now, too?
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: And not only you guys are playing there, now it seems to me, I guess if we're at this point with uh, television, there's the whole scene is really starting to grow mm. at CBGB's. To me, it was
0: like a three-year-long New Year's Eve party.
1: That's, see, that's what I want to know a little bit, because it se- is it just as magical as I think it is or as you read that it yes, is?
0: Yes, it was, as I far mean, as got, I'm concerned. Yeah. They asked people, did you know it was going to be what it turned out to be? And most people said no, and I would always say yes. I know, and I knew. You exactly, knew exactly. Yeah, I knew. I mean,
1: you can look at these fucking pictures, and you just you can just see like yeah. how could it not be just so bad to the bone, and just like uh, right. amazing and exciting, and looking at you know, I'm just. This is just me being young and looking at these things and I right. see it's across the river from living it's happened 10 years earlier but like this is this is beautiful looking to me.
0: Yeah, it people was people like
1: Wayne County or Jane County Jane and they, Wayne yeah, County uh-huh. Johnny Thunders and all and all these people but together and all in the same thing just to make music, you Absolutely. know.
0: Absolutely. And that seems,
1: you know, pretty special.
0: Pretty impressive. It's almost like New York had had nothing for so long that you know, the up and coming kids didn't have uh had nothing to, to copy. You know, the, one of the rules of CBGBs was you couldn't be a cover band. You couldn't come in and do covers. You had to do all original material. And the other rule was only two bands a night, doing two sets each. And if you paid to get in or if you... People who played there, on, a, were, if they were in that roster, they didn't have to pay to get in. So it became more and more full till it was completely packed. The only people who could move were the people on stage.
1: And what a way to get your chops as a band, though, like two sets and like... Well,
0: you know, I thought of the Beatles again in Hamburg where they played five sets a night, you know, and we played two. But we did it, you know, we would play for three days, two sets each, you know. Maybe it would be Talking Heads Television, Talking Heads Television in a night. So we cross-pollinated the audiences, too. And uh, it was pretty fantastic.
1: Was there good camaraderie between everybody?
0: Oh, pretty good, yeah. There was always, uh, like, Tom was aloof, and uh, Johnny Ramone was aloof, and David Byrne was aloof. There was always one in each band that was kind of like uh, seemed to be in competition. But uh, for the rest of us... I mean, I was always friendly with everybody. I was, was deep friends with Dee Dee Ramone, with Lenny Kaye from Patti's Band, with uh, Chris and Tina from Talking Heads. We're still good friends. Uh, he wrote me just yesterday about something. Nice. So, yeah. So, I, I mean, as far as I was concerned, it wasn't uh, so much competition as we all wanted to get signed. We wanted each other to get signed. But then when you get signed... That changes everything? That changes everything because you make a record, you go on tour, you can't play CBs anymore, often. Right. You get too big.
1: And when you... uh before, you get, before we get, I'm going to ask you about getting signed. When you would play, not only you were playing CBGBs, but you weren't really going on any sort of like tour tours. You were just, no. I mean, would, would you go to, but would you play Boston or would you play the Burroughs or something? No, How would we it work? played
0: Cleveland. That was the first time we ever went. That was 76, I think. Why and, Cleveland? Uh, we got invited to play there by uh, Peter Lautner, okay. who was a big fan of the band.
1: And he turned out to be, you want to say who he is?
0: Oh, I For don't anybody? know who he is. Peter Lautner, the music? Peter Lautner. yeah, guitar player. Yeah, and but so, journalist.
1: There you go. For people who don't know who that is, you know, of not course, everybody knows. Not everybody so, knows. So I'll who explain is. who that is, because that was seemed like a very important part, especially the Cleveland yeah. scene. And
0: uh, he he brought us into Cleveland on the uh, terms that his band would get to open, and that was uh, Rocket from the Tombs, the original. And that was like their last gig, The two nights we played with them. Cause they got in fist fights and arguing, and uh, you know, and they broke up right after that.
1: Was it fun to go out of town though and play?
0: It was very much fun to go out of town. We were all huddled in a little in Billy's car, and uh, you know, with all our equipment.
1: <laughs> what kind of amp did you have?
0: We were using uh, Fender Supers at the time.
1: Was that because just, is that what you just had around, or is that, that that's
0: w- what that's what uh, we bought? You know, when both of you guys. Terry said, "Yeah, we both had him." Terry said, "You know, I will uh, st- I will buy amps for the band." You know,
1: as a manager should.
0: As a manager should. That's right. He put uh, put blood, sweat, and tears in it.
1: Nice. Okay, so uh, let's go to maybe getting. Uh, so the Ramones, who's the first man to get signed? Is the Ramones the first band? Who
0: gets signed first? Gee, I wish I knew who was the band to get signed. Well, first. doesn't
1: make it. That's that's really irrelevant. Well, but they you guys all got get
0: signed. signed. You know, a lot of them got signed by Seymour Stein. Right, and he of probably had sire a sire records. He wanted television also, but we turned him down because he wasn't offering enough. Yeah, a money squirrely to re- deal, from what you write a about. A squirrely in your book. deal to you know. Uh, you can't make a rec a good record for the amount of money he, he was offering.
1: And you knew what you guys wanted as far as you know, making an album?
0: Yeah, we yeah. knew what we wanted. I mean the island deal, we did that demo and they called us they called Tom up and said, uh, we're ready to come back and do the other half of the record. And he was like, What record? And they said, You just didn't you you just did six songs. We're ready to come back and you do the other six. And we'll put it out. And we were like, no, 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 that's a demo. <laughs> we don't even like it the way it came out, man. So we knew what we wanted, So basically. how
1: does, how does Electra come into the picture?
0: Well, there was a girl named uh, Karen Berg who signed uh, a lot of bands back then. I think she signed her replacements, the B-52s, television, you know. Uh, to, she went on to Warner Brothers... But she was with Electra and she brought Joe Smith, who was the president of Electra, down to see us. And he came back after the show and said, I'd love to, love to see you guys on Electra. And Electra had all these great bands: They had uh, Love, they had Paul Butterfield Blues Band, they had uh, Tim Buckley, they had, you know, a real uh, The Doors, they had a real eclectic, uh, but Absolutely artistic. They were the most uh, sort of revered label for artists. And so we were very happy to sign with them. And they offered enough money, not a great amount, but enough money to make a a, a good record, you know. So we went with them. And I'm glad we did. It was a great label for us until until they signed the cars, and then it was like, "Oh no, there's now they have a television that's commercial," you know.
1: I can see that in the sound. I can see that. Yeah, you know? in the sound. Right. It, uh, definitely. Well, let's 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 talk about recording this album. So, uh, how do you guys end up picking where you're going to record? We wanted and to Andy produce Andy it ourselves.
0: Yeah. Tom d- definitely wanted to produce it. And did and he have any uh, skills wanted, about producing it, an album? Not really, except for the demos we'd been doing our, on our own and Little Johnny Jewel, which we recorded and put out as our own single. Orc do that? Yeah, it yeah. was on, we made it Orc Records.
1: Is that the first single for Orc? That
0: was our first single. Patty Smith had done a single. For Orc. No, or her own.
1: No, but I'm asking about if that was the first single on Orc Records. Was the that, Little Johnny Jewel? Yeah, it was Little yeah. Johnny
0: Jewel parts one and two. Gotcha. <laughs> And uh, so we wanted to produce ourselves, and they said, no, uh, you got to have a producer or a co producer. And so we thought, well, instead of getting a guy like Eno who'll come in with all these crazy ideas, we wanted an engineer producer who was just coming up as a producer. So we got Andy Johns, who had recorded the greatest, you know, classic rock bands. Of the ages, really.
1: He's got a pretty cool pedigree.
0: Had a very cool pedigree. So uh, we invited him to do the co-production. And uh, he came in and and thought uh, that we wanted to sound bad or something.
1: Meaning how? I mean, did he come see you guys play well, out he, though, live to get he, an idea what's going on? He came the
0: night before we were scheduled to be in the studio and set up the drums and recorded some. And, and uh, we sa- he said, hey, do you want to hear them? And uh, we said, sure. And I said, who played the drums? He said, Andy said, I did. I pushed the record button I went in and put, laid down some drums. So he played it, and it was the John Bonham sound. Huge. Huge drums. And uh, Tom said, no, 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 we don't want that. We want small drums. It's a guitar record, not a drum record. And, uh that throw him for a loop? That threw him for a big loop. He was ready. He was like, uh, you don't need me then. I'm going back to to England. You know, <laughs> screw this. And I said, uh, no, Andy, we're hiring you because you've recorded all the greatest guitarists in the world. You know? The, did he
1: not see that it was a, a guitar? I mean, it was a band, but did he not well, see it was a guitar? Well, he was, was like, guitar? oh,
0: you want to sound like the Velvet Underground? Want to sound crappy? It's a New York thing, is it? And we were like, we don't want to sound crappy. We just don't want the drums that big. They're supporting the guitars. So anyway, uh, he was a real rock and roll child. I loved Dandy, and uh, but I don't. There were times when I don't think he liked doing our record.
1: <laughs> Did he just not think it was too rock and roll esque, like on the wild side for him? Yeah,
0: it wasn't. We didn't. We didn't like have giant parties. He was the partying guy in the in the room, with a case of wine and you know, and uh, anyway.
1: But you were there to work and to make an album. We were
0: there serious. We were serious, and I guess he wasn't used to that. He was used to working with the Stones, or Led Zeppelin, or Cream. You know, all of these guys who sort of had hangers on, and we didn't have any. We didn't let anybody in the studio to be hangers-on.
1: I know you partied, but I don't really want to get into any of that. But when you were in the oh, st- that's, I, that's that's
0: separate. I
1: don't, yeah, but I don't, that's that's what I want to know. When you're in the studio, well, I
0: drank with Andy. You, you know, did what like he, a little,
1: just whatever you need, just to kind well, of make yeah, feel good. Sure. Yeah, sure, sure. That's so we Absolutely. had a drinking buddy, maybe. Right, uh, and I also, but I
0: also like studied what he was doing as an engineer. Yeah,
1: that's what I want to know. I, that, I really was fascinated by that when you talk about that in the book, that you really wanted to Tom know was what was going on. Tom was just
0: like, you know, left all the engineering and uh, cho- mic choices and outboard equipment choices to Andy, and I was like, Andy, what's that signal path? And uh, one after I wore him out doing that, he turned to me, and, and he said, well, I could do my job. Or I could teach you, but I can't do both at the same time. And I said, "Well, Andy, you have to, because I'm—I've. Tom is in charge of this, and Billy's in charge of that, and Fred's does this, and I'm the guy who wants to know what's uh, how. Who? How are you making our sound? You know. So after a while, he got used to that, and he taught me a lot of stuff. Which I then use as an engineer.
1: And what do you? What did you? I mean, what did you take away from, from him from, from that experience with working with him?
0: Oh, too many things to mention. Oh yeah. Yeah, mic choices, uh, compressor ch- uh, settings and choices, all sorts of you know various engineering things. Short wire. Basically short wire. I'm
1: saying it also selfishly for my man out there because I want him to hear some of that. Too, yeah,
0: not it, not too much in the signal path. No. As little as possible.
1: But you still use all those, all that today when you do stuff? Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: And when I do my own records, I didn't do this last record on my own. I, I had an engineer, but he used all the same mics I would have used on the drums and, you know, I mean, it's, uh, et cetera, but I don't work on Pro Tools, I just use, I have a digital captured device, 24 track, but it's now in my basement, my studio is, uh, you know, kaput, I don't have a studio space.
1: Okay, so let's, so you record the album, uh, the album, and and you're happy with the product that comes out? Oh,
0: absolutely, except I wept when I heard the vinyl, because it didn't sound as good as it did in the studio. No. No, it never does. You know, it's the limitations of the scratching a plastic disc with a nail, basically. Very caveman vinyl records. Ungawa records. Although they're coming back now, and I love them.
1: Um, So the album comes out, and then I guess Electro, they want to send you... Do they, want, do they want to send you out to support the album? Yeah, guess, is that, is they that how they hooked you up g- with Peter they, Gabriel? Is that they what got that? us
0: a gig opening for Peter Gabriel. That what was, was your
1: feeling on that as a band?
0: Well, you, he was just leaving Genesis, so it was a good matchup. Uh, you know, but the funniest thing was that when we were playing, people would scream, Peter Gabriel. And uh, then when Peter came on, after about three songs, people started going, Genesis, Genesis. (laughs) So it was like nobody could win on that tour, you know?
1: Do you go stateside or do you go to England?
0: That was all stateside. We did 30, 30 shows with him, and then we did a West Coast tour of our own, and then we went to England where we were already big before we got there.
1: Are you getting airplay? I mean I you know no I kind of know the answer I know the answer to that anyways no, but I just want to uh, ask are you guys kind of like what the fuck is going on with zero this record
0: airplay you know which is uh, kind of what what um Seymour Stein had prophesized you know that we would have a continuing rabid fan base but that we wouldn't get airplay It's uh,
1: g- sorry go ahead
0: No that's it
1: But I mean I get I read what you uh, what you wrote in your book
0: yeah, you know, buy my book.
1: But yeah, we'll get there. Don't worry, we'll get. All, we'll give the people yeah, the good word to get that out.
0: We're coming to that. We're getting moment.
1: there, man. Hold on. Uh, so, uh, but he said that you guys would have a longevity, like uh, what do you say? Like yeah, or something. You know, twenty-five years. But most, almost every single one of those bands in that whole hat, scene is in the right. same way, the same exact way, and all those bands are influencing anybody right now. You know,
0: absolutely, without a doubt.
1: So uh, your bit, you go to England, and that's big for you because you were already big over there.
0: Yeah, we're playing two thousand seat theaters there, which are all that. sold out. Yeah, and that was great. Yeah,
1: and then you come back.
0: Come back to piddling clubs.
1: And then they want do this. want you to do the next record already, or what's what's the time frame with yeah, that? Yeah,
0: they're pretty much hot to do another record.
1: And do you guys have the songs?
0: We had songs out of our. We had enough songs left over. We could have done another record like Marky e. Moon, but Tom didn't want to do that. He wanted to write songs in the studio, which I thought was a terrible waste of our money. But, you know, that was the way it, it goes with the stubborn stubborn Tom.
1: Do you have a a voice in the band as far as expressing Everybody yourself? Everybody
0: had a voice in the band. We voted. And in the beginning, if it was a tie, because there's four of us, Terry York would uh, decide. So we voted but by and by and uh, as things went on and Terry wasn't our manager anymore uh Tom took more of that power.
1: Why was Terry did Terry leave or was Terry what was what
0: happened When we signed with Electra, it was like Terry wasn't a uh wasn't really a good businessman. He was great for us in the beginning and uh you know and I love the guy since deceased, so he can't speak for himself. But you know, he was, he was terrific, and that's why we named uh, the Little Johnny Jewel Orc Records to leave him with something, you know, a label. And he did pretty good with that little. There's a label. set
1: that's out. I mean, it came out some that's years right. ago. That's I, great. You know. Yeah. And I was think, I was looking through my records the other night, and I have the Idol seven inch. I mean, I bought that years ago, but I, I didn't. I kind of didn't really realize that that's on. That's an Orc that,
0: one. That's on. Uh, yeah, the Orc.
1: Yeah, I didn't realize that. I
0: can't remember what that thing is called. The Ork Box. But that what the a legacy, box.
1: what a legacy in an ear that this guy, you know. Oh had. yeah, absolutely. So that's great. So that lives on too, you know.
0: Everything lives on.
1: So, uh, he, so you record Adventure, and, yeah. and you're just are you are you knowing it going in? You're not happy with these songs, or
0: I mean. Uh, so so. Yeah. You know, so so. Slowly, uh, we turned. And then Tom wanted to leave the band and so did I. So we just called it a day. He wanted all the money for of you know, the third record for himself. You know, we both had a we were all signed together as a band.
1: And that's how you got your That's solo. how I
0: got my solo record for. Were them. you uh
1: inside me. yeah, were you inside though hurt when the band was like was was done or did you
0: No, nah? I was relieved. Yeah. Yeah. Until 2000, when was it? 2001, we got back together. Something like that.
1: But you guys got back together and you recorded that record For in the 90s. Capital. Right? 92. 92, yeah. Well, I appreciate your time. Before you well, bail, I, w- you. I just want to know, as a guitar player, what did John Lee Hooker say to you
0: about the secret? He told me secret? to take all the strings off but one and play one string up and down, sort of like they play on a sitar you know it's really one string melodies
1: and that was a secret to the electric guitar that, in his words yeah
0: that was one of his secrets to playing the electric guitar i can't tell the whole story it's in the book so read the book
1: is there anything that you want to is there a website or anything is people can go to
0: everythingiscombustible.com okay. is the website for the book the book is called everything is combustible
1: it's a good read and a nice memoir i appreciate your time
0: all right thank you very thanks, much thanks all right adios all right.
1: Adios Alright, I'd like to thank Sir Richard Lloyd For taking the time to talk to us today And keeping our TV tan in check I especially want to thank the downtown Chattanooga Public Library For making this action happen And my own personal shock therapy technician behind the console Dr. Charles Allison For keeping me in check This is Justin Savage saying don't let the flesh fall off the bone.